This episode of HBR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hello and welcome to this, the third episode in this series, especially for Hacker Public Radio, HPR, called A Beginner's Guide to the Night Sky, with me, McNallu, real name Andrew. And this episode, episode three, is entitled A Wee Dot on a Dark Sky. And there's two things in that title. There's the dark sky bit. It's quite remarkable, certainly it's worth remarking upon, that our night sky is dark. Uh, But that is something for a future episode in Cosmology, because it's telling us something about whether the universe is infinite or finite, about whether the universe is very full of stars, a high star density, about whether... um, the, the the light from these stars have had enough time to re- reach us here at the Earth. But as I say, that is interesting, but um, uh, fortunate in a way that we have a dark sky, otherwise we wouldn't be able to notice uh, the faint dots of starlight. So um, what we have in our real night sky is a little tiny amount of light from the stars at night, other than the, the sun, which we can only see during the day, of course, by definition. Um, and these, this feeble amount of light from stars um, is telling us all we know about them. We didn't learn a huge amount about stars from the sun, because there's only one example of the sun. Uh, and it's a pretty normal star, very close to it, but that doesn't help us because there's only, we're only close to one example of a star. And when we look up at the night sky, all we get to see of these other, all these other stars, at least as far as our eyes are concerned, is a little dot of light, a wee dot of light. So how do we know so much about stars? Well, let me start with the fact that well, we don't just see a little dot of light. Well, first of all, let's look at the difference between a star and a planet. Now, the first most obvious thing about planets is that they, they are wanderers. That's what they mean... Uh, that's what the name means literally from the Greek. A planet means wanderer. And they move position quite rapidly amongst the background of the stars. But the, the pa- patterns of the stars themselves remain fixed. Now, simple notions of parallax tell us that things that are closer appear to move more quickly. Um, so uh, a tree that passes your car window while you're driving down the road will appear to move more quickly than a jet fighter travelling on the horizon some miles away, um, even if you're looking at it through, through the same window. Similarly, the, the, the planets appear to move much more quickly because they're closer. And the second thing about pl- uh, planet light is that the dots aren't that wee. 
with the naked eye, you should be able to perceive that a star at a given altitude or angle above the horizon uh, will twinkle. Now, the lower the better, actually. The lower the, the, the star, the more it twinkles. A planet, say Jupiter or Saturn or Mars, anyone will do, at the same altitude will twinkle a lot less, in fact, hardly at all. And the reason is because the dot of a planet is not so wee, it's not so small. Um, And in fact, with a small telescope, uh, in the case of uh, certainly Jupiter, but also Mars and Saturn, uh, you'll quite easily be able to make out uh, the, the fact that the planet has a disk. And that is why the planet doesn't twinkle as much. Because the star even to the best of our optical telescopes, is essentially a dot of light, an unresolvable dot of light, well below the optical diffraction limit of any uh, traditional telescope that we've ever made. Certainly any that I imagine uh, myself or any of the listeners here uh, will ever lay their hands upon uh, in an amateur capacity. So, we're not going to tell an awful lot about stars by looking at their, uh, their disks, other than the sun, of course. So what else have we got to go on? Well, your eye can pick up one other thing about some stars. If you look at Orion, uh, which I mentioned in the first episode, you'll notice that Rigel, uh, which is in the bottom right foot of Orion, as you're looking at it, is whitish, maybe tinged with blue, although I never see the blue with my eyes. Whereas Betelgeuse, a star of comparable magnitude, that is about the same brightness to our eyes, at the top left shoulder of Orion, it has quite a distinct orangey-red hue to it. Now, again, depending on your urban environment, um, or your, your location and your eyes, and um, also whether you've got a fever or not, whether you're drunk or not, your dark adaption uh, and therefore your perception of colour may differ. Um, so... Uh, you may not see these colours quite the way I described them, or at all, but usually most people see the colour of Betelgeuse. For the dimmer stars, you can't perceive colour at all, they're just too dim, so it's only the very brightest of stars, or if you view stars through binoculars or a a telescope, that'll allow more light into your eye and therefore give you a better idea of the colour. Now, the colour of a star is simply related to its temperature. It's basic physics, actually. Uh, You can do the experiment, just turn on an electric element, and it will start off not glowing. Uh, It will be giving out infrared radiation, which you can confirm by holding your hand near it. You can feel something is heating up your hand, if you hold it close enough. And then, as it heats up, it should go red, and then orange, then yellow, and then uh, white. Uh, Although... If you are have an electric element in a cooker or uh, an electric heater that goes white hot, I suggest you turn it off quickly and call an electrician. Um, but if you let it go, keep going, eventually it would start to emit off the blue end of the spectrum, get bluish tinge, and be beaming out ultraviolet, which of course would give, maybe give you a nice suntan. Um, but uh, you won't get a suntan by looking at a, a very hot star, such as, as, as Rigel. Uh, or even a star tan for that matter uh, light's obviously just too feeble so um, just with your eyes you can make some determination of the physical property of a star its temperature just from its colour and if you want to do better than that 
then you need to start splitting up the light into the spectrum of its colours. Now the simplest device you can use for such a purpose is called a prism. It's a block of glass, usually it's of triangular shape. Uh, and that would do the job rather nicely and produce a, a spectrum of the light. In astronomy, at least in professional astronomy, a prism is very rarely used. In fact, it's almost never used to produce a spectrum for two reasons. First of all, every, uh, every millimetre that light has to travel through glass or perspex or any transparent material, you'll lose some of that light because no material is perfectly transparent. So you really want to avoid um, losing light by passing it through a big thick block of glass like a prism. Now you can make a small prism, yes, and that, that would uh, reduce the effect. But even then, there's all kinds of other problems with using uh, prisms, not least of which is that the mathematics describing the diffraction side of prism uh, is rather complex. Um, so the solution to this is to use something called the diffraction grating, and it works in quite a different way. It, it uses the, uh, the interference wave properties of, of light to cancel out light at, at certain angles, leaving you with only, if you're viewing light through a diffraction grating for a particular angle, you're guaranteed only to see one wavelength of light. Um, so it works quite differently from a prism, but it has the same desired effect. It will produce a spectrum. Uh, if you hold a screen uh, on the other side of the diffraction grating, so you've got your telescope, uh, one side, the diffraction grating, and another side you'd have a screen where you could view the spectrum, or you could replace that with photographic film, or in modern equipment, of course, you'd replace that with some kind of digital camera, and you get a nice uh, image of the star spectrum. Now, the other reason that you would want to use a diffraction grating, quite apart from the light loss problem of a prism, is that the mathematics uh, of, a, uh, of a diffraction grating are much, much, uh, uh, is much simpler. And, uh, uh, and in fact, you, could, uh, you can uh, work out the, the, uh, the angle of diffraction, the angle at which you'll find a particular wavelength. The sine of that angle is equal to the wavelength divided by... Uh, the the distance between lines in the diffraction grating, which distance between think of a diffraction grating as a tiny little fence with slits and slats, um, and typically you'll have thousands watts per millimeter to produce the, the desired uh, effect with light, uh, giving you the spectrum. And so, if you can get down to thousands of uh, lines per millimeter that kind of level, or maybe hundreds would do actually, thousands is probably a bit much, but certainly hundreds of lines per millimetre, then uh, then you'll get your interference effect to produce your spectrum, and then you get that simple equation that I just said. The sine of the angle of diffraction equals the wavelength divided by the distance between slats and the diffraction grating. So from that, you can probably guess, well, if you've got any maths, um, any feeling for the maths, that because the angle is wavelength divided by the distance between slats and the diffraction grating, then you want, as I was suggesting before, a smaller gap between the slats and the diffraction grating as possible, because that will produce a wide range of angles. And indeed, that's what that's why you need several hundred lines per millimetre. Anyway, so I'm a bit distracted there with diffraction gratings. But what you will see if you do that 
is that a star has a continuous spectrum. And indeed, you can sort of tell that from our own sun. Uh, the sunlight is whitish. It's You've got a yellowish tinge to it. Cartoon drawings by children often colour the sun in yellow. But actually, the, the sun, if you think about it, is not that yellow. I mean, if you look at a whitewashed wall on a sunny day, it doesn't look yellow, does it? No, it, it looks distinctly white. So... Um, but there is, but it's got a yellowish tinge to it, which is why um, uh, old-fashioned old tungsten uh, filament light bulbs give us a much more pleasing light than some of the LED or low-energy fluorescent equivalent bulbs, because uh, because essentially you're looking at with a with a, a filament bulb, you're looking at an object, the filament glowing at about the same temperature as the surface of the sun. So. By physics, it produces more or less the same spectrum, what in physics you would call a black body spectrum. Rather confusing, because it's not black at all. I'm not going to go into the physics of black bodies. I already digressed off into diffraction grating, so resist that temptation. But maybe I'll come back and talk about black bodies, and might even mention it in the show notes, because who knows, it might put up the number of hits and uh, search engines uh, to the the episode. Anyway, so... uh, yeah, so you get this emission across the spectrum, but if you were to look at it carefully, you would find that it isn't flat across the whole spectrum. White light is emission across the whole spectrum, but you'd actually find that sunlight peaks in the green part of the spectrum. Not that our eyes can see it, because the sun doesn't look green, because it's, as I say, it's, it's, it's really quite broad spectrum. Uh, but it's, it's slightly higher in the green, there's more light emitted in the green than there is, say, in the red or the blue. And that's because the surface of our sun uh, is at a temperature of... 5,800 uh, uh, Kelvin. Uh, now, it's probably worth me saying what a Kelvin is. Um, uh, it's it's very simple in one sense. It's not like Fahrenheit and degree C. A change of one Kelvin is one degree C. Um, um, the only thing is that the Kelvin scale starts at minus 273 degrees C. So, uh, if you take a temperature of... Uh, if I say quote your temperature of uh, in Kelvin of five thousand eight hundred Kelvin, you have to subtract two hundred and seventy three from it. So ballpark, let's say the surface of the sun is five thousand five hundred degrees C. Now, as far as our everyday experience of temperature goes, that's just hot. Five thousand five hundred, five thousand eight hundred. You know, you know, in, in, in physics that's quite important, but in everyday intuition, that's just basically hot and emits white across the spectrum. Now I said that the sun spectrum peaks in uh, in the green. That that doesn't mean the sun looks green, as I said, and I don't think it's related to the fact that plants are green uh, because of the chlorophyll in them. I don't think that's true. I I've heard it suggested a number of times. I've never quite got to the bottom of it, um, but then. Be honest, I haven't seriously looked, and I, you know what? I'll look again, and maybe in the next episode I'll tell you what I find. But if you know uh, if the fact that what, why most plants are green, most leaves are green, uh, do let me know in the comments to this show. Anyway, another digression. Now, superimposed upon that continuous spectrum are parts of the spectrum that appear a little bit darker. Uh, and these are called absorption lines. So if you look at a spectrum of the sun, you'd see it going, as you'd expect, a rainbow, well, same uh, as a rainbow, you go um, sort of red, yellow, uh, green, and then off through the blues, uh, eventually, so I'm going to violet colour, and then 
those are all the colours that you would see with the eye. And of course, well, off one end you've got infrared, and off the other end you've got ultraviolet, but we can't see them. Anyway, on top of this sort of rainbow spectrum, you would see these dark lines called absorption lines. And these are caused because atoms in the atmosphere of the sun, so above that surface of the sun that I referred to called um, the photosphere, that's what it's called, that bright surface, that bright ball that we see, that's, if you like, what we think of as the sun. But there's an atmosphere above that called the chromosphere, which we can't see except during eclipses. And in that, there's some actually cooler gas um, and in that you'll find atoms and those atoms are stopping some of the light at very particular wavelengths that correspond to energy levels in the atom so again I have to go into a wee bit of digression into physics here so you've got an atom and let's say it's mainly hydrogen there's other, there's other things in there but a hydrogen atom uh, which is what the sun and most stars are made of is a positively charged proton one particle in the middle called the nucleus and around that is a single negatively charged electron. Now, just like you can find planets in the solar system orbiting at different distances from the sun, electrons in an atom can be found at different distances from the proton. So electrons orbiting the atom can be at different distances from the proton. But since we're now in the realm of the weird and wonderful quantum uh, effects. Uh, It turns out the electron doesn't really occupy any old orbit. It uh, is constrained to be in one of a set of uh, allowable orbits, quantum uh, orbits if you like, and each of those corresponds to a different energy level. And when um, light from the sun comes in, and the particle of light is called a photon, as opposed to a proton, which is the positive charge thing in the centre of the atom, when a photon, photon particle of light arrives at the atom, if that has just the right amount of energy, if it's just the right wavelength, it will be able to bump the electron from its current energy level up to a higher one. And then that photon will disappear. And it won't come to us here at the Earth. And it won't make it through your diffraction grating and your telescope, etc. So uh, you'll get a dark light, but only at that wavelength. Now, a hydrogen atom has many different uh, energy levels, so it can produce a number of lines um, and uh, these dark lines historically go by the name of Fraunhofer lines. Also uh, you will find the lines corresponding to other elements and what's particularly interesting is that the element helium which may be in a balloon uh, near you uh, is um, named after the sun helium, helios word for the sun because that is where it was discovered. It wasn't discovered here on Earth. It's very rare. Uh, it doesn't bond with anything so it's helium only, unlike hydrogen which is plentiful in water and other places. Helium can only really be found by itself. Um, it doesn't bond with anything. It's noble, what's called a noble gas. It doesn't react. So uh, it was never found here on Earth and they noticed this strange pattern of spectral lines, these absorption lines in the sun that they'd never seen anywhere else and concluded there must be another element called helium and eventually it was found here on the Earth in tiny quantities uh, and then bagged up and sold as balloons um, but we need to stop doing that otherwise, well, we might run out of helium for uh, uh, for medical purposes again, another story so um, once it was realised that you could associate um, 
these spectral lines that you'd find in the spectrum of the sun with light from atoms that you could analyse in the lab. So you could take a hydrogen sample in the lab, pass them white light through it, and create your own absorption lines and match those up with what you saw in the sun. Um, and then in the reverse direction, helium was discovered in the sun, and then we found it here on the Earth. Uh, and a lot of other um, elements that we know about, such as carbon, for instance, were identified here on Earth in their spectral signature, and then we found them in the sun. Um, it turns out that although the light from other stars is relatively feeble, it, there, it's still possible with a telescope to produce a spectrum and find these spectral lines quite easily, even in the feeblest of light from stars, really modest equipment. So very quickly, we were able to determine not only what temperature the surface of a star was from its broad spectrum, but by hunting for spectral lines, these absorption lines in particular, we could start to, to make measurements of what elements were present um, in, in the stars. And what we found is that the Sun and most stars, in fact most of the universe, is predominantly hydrogen um, and a small amount of helium and only a tiny amount of everything else. So roughly speaking, the universe is about 75% hydrogen, 20-something percent helium, and then probably generally less than 1% everything else. Um, uh, and this varies slightly from star to star. Uh, Jupiter shows, for example, as a gas giant, it shows a similar makeup. Uh, it, it does vary from star to star and uh, from, di- and from different places uh, in the universe. If you look at different places, you'll find slightly different con- uh, makeups. But it's always around that sort of 75 25 hydrogen helium ratio. I should point out that that's by, measured by the mass of the atoms. If you go around counting atoms, uh, then that figure is more like 90%, 10%, because, uh, and that's because helium is roughly four times more massive than, than hydrogen. Anyway, another digression. So, from only a tiny dot of light, if you can get that spectrum, you can determine an awful lot about the stars. And then, once you've looked at uh, a number of stars you can start to build up correlations. And the first correlation that you can build up is that the surface temperature of a star is correlated with how much light is pouring out of it. Now, the story of how you do that um, is that you need some number that measures uh, the, the temperature of a star. Now it could be the temperature itself, but in the olden days you didn't do that. You took a what's called a, a B filter, a blue filter, uh, looked at how bright the star appeared through that through your telescope, and then you took uh, a V filter, V for visible, and looked at how bright uh, your star appeared through that through a telescope. And of course, if you had a, a blue star, then uh, it would look uh, brighter through the the blue filter. Uh, so you could then take the, the difference of B minus V, the values you got for the brightness of the star, and the system used back then was called magnitude, where um, the brightest stars in the sky have a magnitude around zero, and the dimmest that you could see with your naked eye were about six. So you could work out the magnitude through the B and the V filter, and then the, the B magnitude minus the V visible magnitude uh, would give you what's called the colour index, and that would give you a number which actually is very well tied, uh, very well 
closely connected to the temperature of the star, surface temperature of the star. And you can plot that along one axis, and you can draw another axis, up the way usually, and on that you can plot how bright the star actually is. That is removing the effect of the fact that different stars are at different distances. Now for the closest stars you can use the parallax effect, which I think I mentioned in the first episode. The fact that as the Sun um, um, sorry, as the Earth orbits the Sun uh, six months apart the Earth will be uh, on opposite sides of the Sun and a nearby star due to this parallax effect will appear to move back and forth uh, as the Earth orbits the Sun and you'll see nearby stars moving back and forth and you can measure how far what the angle by which they move back and forth you, you can, with a bit of simple uh, geometry, trigonometry, you can calculate the distance to the star. And by doing that, then you can calculate what's called the absolute magnitude of a star. An absolute magnitude of the star is how bright it would appear to be if you moved it to a standard distance, which is 10 parsecs, which is 32.6 light years. I could quote that to you in metres, but it's a very large distance indeed. Suffice to say, one light year is the distance that light travels in a year, and light travels 300,000 kilometres every second. So it's a very large distance, but it's standard. Anyway, so what you end up with is a scatter plot um, of uh, um, values along the horizontal axis, which you call the B minus V index, which is essentially measuring the surface temperature of the star. And on the vertical axis, you plot the absolute magnitude, which is essentially measuring how much light is pouring out the surface of the star. And as I said before, you find the two are very strongly correlated for most stars. And in f- fact, there's a um, on the famous diagram, it's called the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, uh, what you see is that uh, that red stars tend to be intrinsically rather dim, have um, what's called low luminosities. Uh, luminosity is the amount of energy pouring out of a star per second. We actually would, you can measure it in the same units we, we use for light bulbs. Um, so like uh, there's a light bulb next to me, it's about 100 watts I think. Um, the sun, uh, which I can't see because it's Scotland and it's all cloudy, um, if it was a light bulb it would be rated at about 4.6 times 10 to the 26 watts. And that's 4, 6 and then another 23 uh, sorry, 25 zeros watts. So rather more <laughs> powerful than a, a light bulb. Um, anyway, I again, I've done my digression thing. So what you end up with is a correlation. You've got red, dim, that is low luminosity stars, and blue, bright, intrinsically bright, high luminosity stars. Most stars will lie in this, this a straight line going from red and dim up to um, blue and luminous um, and that line is in astronomy called the main sequence because you find most stars on that and the sun sits in the middle uh, not particularly uh, hot or cool surface temperature not particularly high luminosity not very low luminosity either neither is it red nor is it blue it's um, typical I, wouldn't, I, I, I don't say average because most star, the average star would be in the red end most stars are, are small, faint and low surface temperature. The sun is, I would say, a typical star. There's nothing special about where it sits in the diagram. And you see other stars. You see these strange, luminous, um, but red, 
things, and they're called red giants. And you might sometimes pick up these rather odd little things called white dwarfs, which are surprisingly high temperature, but very, very dim. Um, and uh, uh, so it's not quite as simple as just a simple main sequence. There are other things going on in this in this plot called Hertzsprung-Russell Diagram. And I'll provide a link to one in the show notes. So um, I think what I'll do is I'll bring this episode to a close here because I think I've actually packed quite a lot in, rather more than I intended to. Uh, if it was too much, please let me know. Um, if there are things you feel I skated over uh, or gave, gave short shrift to, uh, let me know about that as well and I'll endeavour to address that in future episodes um, well uh, thank you very much again for listening and thanks to all those uh, on HPR who make this a great community and I shall hopefully do another Beginner's Guide to the Night Sky episode 4 in the not too distant future thanks, bye bye You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.